0: We interrupt your regularly scheduled Apocalypse Duds broadcast to bring you an important notice. This episode was recorded in real life, deep in the bowels of Baltimore, Maryland, far from the relative safety of a video chat or a Zoom call. Thusly, there may be audio aberrations and other glitches in this episode, but fear not, you are in no danger, and your brave hosts only expose themselves to minor peril to conduct this interview. We know you will enjoy it. Hi, I'm Connor Fowler. And I'm Matt Smith. Welcome to Apocalypse Studs. Today is a very special show. We are joined by Kevin Caller, former Brighton Bears basketball club star, award-winning editorial cartoonist for The Economist and The Baltimore Sun, among many other titles and accolades. Cal, thank you for joining us on this beautiful March day, the first day of spring.
1: It's great to be with you guys. Yeah, yeah, welcome, man. thanks. Thanks for coming and hanging out with us. And, uh, this is also special because Connor and I are actually in this exact same place for the first time ever recording a show. Right,
0: right, right. We're in the same building. so this is pretty funny. So we'll start at the very beginning, I think. and where you came from? Where did you grow up?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, which is in the kind of suburban uh, ring near New York City. It's a, about an hour from New York City. And, um, yeah, I grew up, and I'm an older gent. I'm, I was born in 1955. So my, my early uh, formative years were in the 60s and 70s. Nice, nice.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, and so I, what I imagine... You- no, go on. Uh- I was going to say, I imagine being close to New York in the uh, 60s and 70s and, and coming of age around that time had to be really fun.
2: It was a really, really, really interesting time. I, yes. mean, I suppose all times are interesting, but there's something iconic because the, I think the shift from my parents' generation to my generation was a much larger lurch than it has been for my generation to your generation. Certainly, certainly. So, what
0: did you wear while you were growing up? I mean, I guess we're interested in it all, but if there's a particular thing that's that, stands out to...
2: well, um, I, I I would probably describe my early years, that is up till the age of about thirteen, is um, being in New England Catholic uh, realm, and so the you know relatively conservative, but it was also at a time, and I and I, I want to paint this picture for you guys. This was a time when there was not a lot of variety available. You know, there was only one kind of, kind of jeans. There was certain, I was, when I was in, in, in uh, eighth grade, seventh grade, and I was playing basketball, there was one shoe, it was a converse. There was no other shoes that you could wear. And so... There was a, in some ways, there was a kind of a uniform that people would wear if they were middle-class white Americans, and that's kind of pretty much where I was.
0: So, what did you wear growing up?
2: So, so I, you know, growing up in in New England Catholic family, a large Catholic family, that I, I that's precisely what my wardrobe was: New England Catholic, which meant that it was, you know, pretty conservative, um, buttoned down, and uh, we would, you know. When you were, we spent a lot of time playing, of course, so that meant as as kids it was just kind of jeans, t-shirts, nothing special, nothing special at all. There was like no sort of sense of style uh, or attention to detail. But um, in my early years, it was also a lot of changes took place in the American um, clothing landscape. Uh, when you know when I was young, there was one one kind of jean that people could wear, and uh, there was. Branding had only just started for like clothing. Uh, my my first one that I really remember strongly was the alligator for Lacoste. That would became a giant symbol uh, right. and a recognizable brand that people kind of saw. Uh, and that's besides the you know typical American stuff that 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 people were just seeing all the time. But I t- but also in, in 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 my school my gra- grammar school growing up a Catholic school we had a uniform we had to wear we'd have a blue blazer gray pants white shirt you know tie, so I, a a spectacular uh, change, or shall I say, eruption in my uh, my con- how I conceived of clothing took place when I became a freshman in high school, where I was at a Again, there's a Catholic boy's school, a Jesuit school uh, called Fairfield Prep, which is like Loyola High School here in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And But the, the, the key thing was is that they used to have a uniform. But when I was a freshman, everything was changed so that you had to wear a jacket and tie, but you didn't have any restrictions about color or style. So I would go into class and then I'd see guys with all different colors on their clothing, you know, from – olives and greens and, and, and browns and ties that were wide and narrow, lapels that were giant and small, bell bottoms and straight legs. <laughs> and so all of this stuff came in and it was a revelation. And you go, wow, this is so cool. And so my freshman year, however, when I arrived, you know, I, I, my, my, my wardrobe had been chosen by my mom and I went with her, was basically echoing where we come from. But the next year I wanted a, a say in my wardrobe, and so this was the time with opportunity for, for playing around. So that, that was a really interesting time for, for my perception about clothing. The second thing was, you know, I mentioned to you that I was playing basketball. And um, the world of basketball, and as we know now, you know, sports and basketball is, you know, leads in fashion making of sorts. And those days, it was, so, it was such a, 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 an infant state. And I saw how, in the course of about five years, from I was about 13 to age 18, how the styling of people playing basketball changed as um, more shirts came out representing schools. Schools started branding, and so you could have different types of um, shirt colors and and, and combinations. Shorts, the sizes of shorts changed, of the, the socks wore, and then most importantly, of course, the shoes. Went from just one brand, about four or five brands. You know, Nike came along and Adidas came along, and people would then pay attention. Guys would pay attention to what other guys are wearing because they it, it meant something. It wasn't just the branding, but it it, it it said something about you. The choice that you made of your shoes made a difference about how you regarded yourself and how you wanted other people to see you. Then, as I started playing more and more basketball, uh, I was learning that when you start to play pickup basketball, you go down to a playground or you go to a gym and there's 30 people there. And you your job is you want to stay and play on the court as long as possible. And the teams that win stay on the court. So when you try to assemble a team of five players made up of people that you didn't know, how would you judge their quality of their play part of your decision was by what they were wearing because you could tell okay look at that guy's shoes how you know that's a really nice set of shoes is his game up to those shoe level i mean you can't you don't get a game you do not buy a pair of shoes that's way above your 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 playing level cuz it'll make you look like an idiot and then you saw the kind of clothes to make you feel understood, that they under they they had an, a a notion of what the quality players would be like, and so you you were constantly assessing people in a way that I had never done before. So it was it was a great education. Yeah, that's
1: that's a very cool origin story about uh about like learning and evolving and and finally like paying attention. Mm. Yeah. Uh when and why did you start going by Cal?
2: Well, my, uh, you know, my last name is Callaher, as you right. know. And uh, when I went to high school, I had an older brother who was three years older than me. So when I was a freshman, he was a senior. And when I got to school, everyone called my brother John Cal, you know, is a short name. For, right. And, and I was little Cal, you know. Okay. And I was little Cal. And then Ooh. I started doing. I was doing cartoons as well, so I'd sign them, Cal. But then when he graduated, I lost the moniker of Little, and I suddenly <laughs> became Cal. And and I've owned it ever since. He's never tried to fight it back. We haven't done a, an arm wrestling match or anything to see who actually has ownership of it. But um, who's the true Cal? Who's the true Cal?
0: Uh, I'm gonna say this is going ahead a little bit, but so your own clothing journey for lack of a better term is that term but right. for lack of a better term uh you had a little nature and a little nurture right yeah guided by the hand of capital in a way uh you were guided by advertising the branding was effective there's yeah there's like all sorts of perception um mm-hmm. things at stake so i just yeah. wanted to note that um i which is that I wonder if you are aware of the popularity of Ivy style quote unquote days. We know that you went to school in Boston at the Ivy league institution
2: and we were your experiences with Ivy, with Ivy league style. Yeah. You know, it's so fascinating to me because, you know, I've been, you know, out of college for now nearly 50 years and, I've seen Ivy style come go up in popularity go back down, come back up, you know, and it's very interesting why, and trying to figure out why, what is it that, that makes people uh, um, warm to it? So when I was there, remember, I was there in the seventies, mid seventies.
1: Yeah. You kind of get the tail end of like the golden age. Of yeah, like that's right. Taylor of a, yeah. Oh boy. You
2: know, and that's a, such a shame because it would have been just, you know, love to have taken full advantage of that. Right, So right. you know, uh, so I go there and um, you know, but I go to Harvard with not much budget as a you know from you know personal uh, issue. So uh, the notion of trying to do, do anything above and beyond what was required to just kind of survive uh, in that environment um, meant that I couldn't be imaginative. However, I was surrounded by a lot of people with money who were now buying, and coming, you know, roommates who could dress really well. And in fact, one of the um, great things was that my college roommate, his father ran a clothing store in Pittsburgh. And whenever Ooh. he came to visit the visit, us, he would bring me clothes. You know, did you oh, know really- my size was? It was, well, they had three stores. I, one of them I remember was called High, Wide, and Handsome. And nice. it was, you know, a, 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 a size, you know, a, for, for plus size guys and so on. And there was a very popular, but as a family run thing. And so when he, you know, was moving on, you know, he sold off the business. It probably was absorbed by some big chain or something, but it was a great, great family business. And this guy, you know, again, woke me to the notion of more details about clothing and you know, types of collars and, um, you know, quality of cotton in the shirts and things like that. That you know, I wouldn't have learned otherwise. And then there was all these finishing clubs at Harvard, right? And these mm-hmm. are these are you know clubs that mostly inhabited in those days, at least, by um, you know the kind of the white aristocracy of America. And it, you had to be invited. And they had these they had cocktail party. I mean, i would never been to a cocktail party, and I was eighteen going to a cocktail bar, surrounded by guys, mostly guys. Um being served drinks by black folks in, you know, white jackets and stuff. and it just seemed so incredibly uncomfortable, right. So you know, of another era. It was just you know, the whole thing. So uh, I, uh, I you know, I, I kind of shied away from warming toward that style because I found it as generically representing something that I didn't feel like it was a part of. so my 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 attire changed from, New England Catholic to um, college jock, basically. (laughs) (laughs) And I was, you know, wearing uh, sweatshirts and, uh, you know, and I was, you know, in and out of the gym all the time. So I had probably more um, T-shirts than I had, you know, uh, other kind of stylish clothes. But that didn't mean that, you know, when you were having an opportunity to socialize with members of the opposite sex, you wanted to look your best. Certainly, so certainly. I would have I I'd try to have some clothes that that would be respectable. Yeah. But a big change, a big change. However, uh, that happened to me was, was immediately after graduating. I, literally within a week, I was on an airplane going to Europe, where I was leading a bicycle tour of American teenagers for five weeks in in Ireland and sorry England and Scotland. And then when the tour finished, I stayed. I cycled around England and Ireland and. And eventually got a job playing semi-pro basketball and lived in in England for nine years. And so my experience then changed, my perception of clothes changed dramatically when I was living in a foreign culture. And when, uh, you know, uh, unlike today, you know, before the Internet, before all sorts of uh, ways that people perceived Americans abroad, today was a lot different back then. That, um, you know, I... Looked like an American people saw me they did people hadn't met Americans a lot of people didn't you know you know I was like their first American that they met and they were they were they were cool with it. you felt special you know and, and yeah. I wasn't wearing I was just wearing you know American jeans and you know a Harvard sweatshirt or you know, whatever they just thought this is so cool
1: right and, right you know
2: but then came a point where um I had lived there for uh, long enough I had kids I was married that I didn't want to be American so much. I wanted to kind of fit in to the, whatever was going on in Britain at the time and my style changed or, or you know, I started getting more you know, tweed stuff and I was uh, my uh, my choice of I I, had, I wasn't wearing sneakers anymore um, and sweatshirts were definitely out, you know, everything was kind of shifting and changing. So that was a big a big kind of um, moment for me.
1: Yeah. And so that's. That... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say it's
2: interesting
0: that at the height of wealth is. Dressing like you're going to the gym. And I mean, that yeah. has a little bit been, been aspirational. Like, the truly wealthy are not wearing fine, tailored clothing, they're wearing yeah. joggers that cost $2,000 and right. uh, whatever sneaker is of the. Movie. That has been an interesting
1: shift as well.
2: Oh, God, yeah. To me, when I see it, it's just so crazy. It's just so crazy. So, Cal,
1: how how would you describe your your style as an adult? And uh, uh, we would be Mm. remiss if we did not mention your love of waistcoats.
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, well, right now, you know, I am a cartoonist, which means that uh, it's a pretty special... Um, designation I mean when you tell somebody you're a cartoonist you can see their eyebrows go up they've never met a cartoonist before it's kind of fun it's, it's definitely special even when you go through security at airports you know or they're checking your passport you say okay what do you do I'm a cartoonist these are guys who hear thousands of people go by with also sort of when they say cartoonist their eyes come up and, and look at you because right. it's so unusual but but it also means that it, it gives you permission to be different, and it gives you permission to be playful in people's eyes, right? And also that kind of plays into my personality, anyways. So I've always my 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 style has evolved as being a combination of many of my past elements. That there's a bit of old English in me that I like. There's a bit of uh, the relaxed uh, informality that you get. Of playing sports and being in that jock world, a degree of formality that I got, you know, working for the Economist It's a very established um, or, organization. And then I have, I have had a big impact in my life by my wife, who's English, and she is also an artist. And her eye, she she knows me, and so she's always encouraged me to um, you know try and experiment with various different things. And then my mom, who had a a, a a lovely color palette and I have the same kind of color palette which was you know full of energy and I really like that. so well, how does that express myself in my looks? Well I have a collection of waistcoats that I've been building up for now probably a couple of de- decades which I love you know, <clears throat> for most most uh, most uh, a, a chances. but it all started with socks because you know, for the longest time for, men didn't have an opportunity to express themselves with color or imagination or creativity, there was a uniform of what you had to wear. And I, um, I always wanted to have crazy socks. And and I always I do a lot of public speaking. I'm out on the circuit. And I remember when I first started, you know, 20 years ago, if I had a crazy pair of socks and the whole audience would look, would notice it, and they go, Wow, that's crazy! Look, there's like a cartoon. There's a pair of socks. Well, now crazy socks are everywhere, right? It means, it means nothing special. But I just want to tell folks: there was a time when that wasn't the way it was. So I, i usually have imaginative socks. I got a great bunch of funky shirts that I really like that I've gotten from a variety of different places. i uh, matching a funky shirt with a waistcoat can be a little tricky at times. Certainly. So I, you know, I do have some solid shirts that go with tricky waistcoats, and then I have crazy, sh- crazy shirts that go with solid waistcoats. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. So you got to, got to work that out. Could you describe your
0: your waistcoat, shirt, scarf, matching that was going on today?
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I, I have a – there's a, a store in France, in Paris. I was there doing an event, and it was February, and it was freaking cold. It was frigid. And my wife and I are kind of wandering around the streets, and she says to me, wherever the next store we pass we're going in to get warm okay <laughs> and we turn this corner and it's this tiny sh- shirt shop uh it must have only been about 10 feet wide 20 feet deep you know it's just like that lined with you know all these really creative fun shirts and the, sh- and the company is called cotton Doux, c-o-t-o-n-d-o-u-x and she, she said, try on some shirts while I get warm. <laughs> so, well, we walked out of there with three shirts, and it's a great place. And ever since then, I have bought – I probably have a dozen of their shirts because you can get them easily online, and I highly recommend people go check them out. And they're very reasonable. Um, so, uh, But I had a, a particular favorite that I love from them, and it's a colorful one, and it's um, all – Imagine uh, spray cans right you know that people do graffiti with spray cans imagine mm. if you flip it up so you only see the top of the spray can but the color of that top of the spray can is apparent well this one is a is a shirt with you know hundreds of spray can tops oh, on that's it cool. and the yeah. colors all pop together so it gives a lot of life and the amount I tell you what i have i have so many times i've worn this shirt i have been stopped in the streets by guys and gals great shirt. Or you walk by, nice shirt, you know, and that doesn't happen very often that people just walk by and say nice shirt. And uh, in fact, um, um, uh, Matt, I know you're from Atlanta, right? I think right. I was in Atlanta at uh, a convention or something like getting coffee. And this guy walks up to me and starts talking to me about my shirt. He says, that is <laughs> the <That's> most amazing shirt. <laughs> and so that way I love that shirt. And then as, but as a result, there's only a couple of waistcoats that I have currently that, kind of work with it. So I got a nice um, blue waistcoat. I don't remember where I got it. Or I think I yeah, I, I got it here. Um, but um, yeah. So that's uh, that was my choice.
1: Nice. Just a rough estimate. How many waistcoats do you think you own?
2: Well you know I it's funny you should ask uh, Matt because I had a, I, cu- I did a call.
1: Okay. A call, right. the, uh,
2: great waistcoat I, call.
0: The Best great call. waistcoat
2: call the waistcoat two weeks ago. And I at that point I had Fifty-five. Okay,
0: all right. And
2: now I've got thirty. Wow, Cal. Yeah. Wow, yeah.
0: Cal. Where did you put them all?
2: Well, I. <laughs> well, my daughter was is, is is said that she wants them. I'm not sure what she plans to do with them, but um, yeah. No, I've got all sorts. I I got all sorts.
0: That's amazing. Well, so you're a collector too. Um, I want about the nature versus nurture thing. I, yeah. I imagine you wanted us to bring that up on the show because you had some thoughts about it. Uh, I had thoughts, but it is a little bit of a cop-out. I would just say that nature and nurture sort of equally uh, buy for importance as
2: concerns your clothing. Yes, I mean, I think you're exactly right there. Um, I, I suppose um, one of the things about the, the nurture side of it is that um, I, I I reckon that there's a lot of people in the world who don't have an opportunity. Either they're not surrounded by people who can help develop or finely tune people's understanding of what works for them. Um, but I've always been fascinated about you know cultures all around the world. Even in in uh, you know in ancient times, people wanted to adorn themselves with attractive, interesting, compelling. Um, colors and designs and it's because as a result so it's kind of innate but I've always been fascinating about how they've evolved over time what's made things as societies change their colors and so on and then bringing it to today with the internet how is these all these variety of cultures and colors and so on um, spreading faster because of the internet and penetrating you know, parts, corners of the world that would have never seen or experienced, you know, what's available in looks these days. Oh, my God. They like the people who I would, I would say
0: that I know these people. I've never met them in real life. But we talk very often who I know in all kinds of places in mm. and Sweden and in California, you know, all over the country. Mm. And we're able to talk to each other about the thing that we care about, mm. which we were not. Do. I mean we all we all kind of came up on these fashion forums. Um, right? And, and now for the most part people use Instagram. Right. But it has been a hugely uniting force.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And a good one I think. I mean that's it's really fantastic. Yeah. Really I, fantastic. I
1: think kind of to to your point about um, you know, styles and, and things spreading also, like you mentioned how you know, your mom influenced your taste. Yeah. And so now it's possible that if you don't have that kind of like personal influence, you can yeah. find, you know, you can find yeah. someone that looks cool and you're yeah, like, oh. yeah, yeah you know, it's a, it's such an interesting like time period, I think for clothing in general. Um, yes. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. And you know, if, if I feel like there's, if, if you want to look a certain way, you can do it. Right, right, uh, right. You know, provided you, you, of course, have the means or, or right. whatnot. But, you know, like also, you know, going thrifting and putting together something that, that yeah. takes inspiration from what you saw. Yes. Like these exactly. are things that you didn't have growing up.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's the thing is, is that I lived in a kind of a, uh, a clothing desert. Right. And it, it wasn't just the area I lived in. It's just that the, the times had that. And so today it's just so fantastic. It's like cornucopia. Of of what's available,
1: yeah, per- perfect description of it. Uh, so, uh, getting into your uh, your art, uh mm. when did when did you realize that you know your artistic skills were uh, something that you could you know make a living off of?
2: Well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, when I, I used to draw a lot when I was a little kid, and I did cartoons for my high school paper, but um, uh, and I always kind of wanted to be a cartoonist. As it turns out, the, the county that I lived in. Uh, and suburban, you know, outside of New York. There's a lot of cartoonists that lived there. They all came there after World War II. They kind of settled into that area. And um, then a bunch of them got together and started this um, cartoon museum down in Greenwich, Connecticut at the time. And I went down and volunteered. You know, as a young kid, I was like 14, 15. So I met cartoonists. And so I could suddenly think, oh yeah, I could do this. When most of the people, if you've never had that opportunity, you know would never dream of it right and um, and so then when I went to university um, and I was uh, studying art as you know I tried studying all sorts of things but my, my final um, uh, senior thesis was a 13 minute long animated cartoon based on a comic strip that I had in the college paper and so um, I started to have dreams that could possibly be true of maybe making my life as a cartoonist but in those days I was going to do a comic strip like dunesberry right. and i had so that was my feeling or uh, i did get offered a job at an animation studio right out of college in those days of course none of this computer stuff my senior thesis was thousands of thousands of hand drawings <laughs> that took me forever <clears throat> so but um but immediately you know like i said before i i went overseas immediately and uh, i also had always a fascinated with caricature and I used to do caricatures in the streets in Cambridge. And you know I was really bad, but I draw all my friends and stuff like that. And, um, but then I started looking for cartooning jobs in, in London uh, and the, the basketball team was having financial trouble. And you know, crazy as it sounds, my first job was with The Economist in London, <laughs> you know? And they were looking for cartoonists when I kind of showed up and it was just a, a, a kind of a, a freak of nature. And uh, by getting my time, you know, getting there, it, then I could get a, a work permit um, as a, you know, and that allowed me to stay. Right. And um, and then, you know, I played for three years and I met my wife and cartooning started to show up. And, I mean, it was, it was, it's crazy. The whole story is crazy and I'm lucky as so. hell. Hell yeah. So, cartooning and
0: caricature, there maybe is a, not Fine line between the two. So, I was wondering what your process for doing a
2: caricature is.
1: Mm, mm.
2: Yeah, so a caricature to me is um, the capturing of an individual. Uh, and I'm going to actually tell you the quote my favorite quote about caricatures from Annabelle Carracci, who's an Italian Renaissance painter. And he said that a good caricature is more true to life than reality itself. So you try to get to the core, the, the source, the, you know, the, the, the nub of an individual. Um, and a character is is not just of the face. It could be of the whole body because we know how people carry themselves. Um, that tells a lot about the person. And the same way that clothes tell, tell you about a person, you, you know, their face does and all the, the way they hold themselves. So for me, uh, I, you know, I've, I've got to get a fix on the individual that I'm drawing if I can. But if I'm just going to be operating on how I'm going to break down a face, well, you know, the the most important feature that we have, surprisingly, is the shape of our head. I mean, each of our shapes of our head is unique. And Mm -hmm. um, it's a reason why you can recognize somebody from a distance or from behind. Right. And so you start with that shape. you got to get those shapes right. And then within the head, there's lots of other smaller shapes. And it's all about the shapes and how they relate to each other. You know, the the shapes, the shapes within the forehead, for example, where certain muscles go, the shape of the eyes, the shape of the cheeks under the eyes. So all you put all these things together, they suddenly um, uh, an an image and a special energy that's specific to that energy, to that individual start to appear. So you're reducing it in a way. Yeah, you're distilling it. um, And then... You know, it's 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 You're also carving the face because I think I always try to think in 3D. Some caricatures work in line, and they're thinking about just the surface. I think about it's almost like I'm carving a head in 3D and molding it. You know, sometimes I'm building the head like adding clay to a to a to a you know a bust, and other times I'm like chipping away at the at the model in order to create the um, different shapes. But I'm doing it in, in distortion, for sure. My, in my caricatures, or the way I like to deal with it, is not in you know utter photographic realism, but in fact trying to have a little playfulness at the same time.
1: Yeah, one of the things that we like so much about your work, outside of you know the editorial, which is always incredible, um, is just the color. Um, you know, how do you how do you select the colors to work with? How do you decide what all you know what's going to be more black and white, and what's going to make you know be a color that pops on a on a draw.
2: Mm. So uh, you know, color has mood. Color's got personality. Um, you guys know this for sure, right? When you're talking Certainly. about clothing, the clothing choice. I mean, it it it, um, it 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 communicates so much. I mean, this is the thing about our eyes, right? As humans, our eyes are absorbing so much information that we don't even know, right? And, and right. trying to back up and trying to break down what our eyes are seeing and why it feels certain ways is one of the great things about dealing with any art. So when people choose certain clothing, sometimes they, they know that this color goes with that, that color because they've seen it done a million times. That helps. Well, the same thing with painting is that sometimes I, you know, you, you try to become a student of color so that when I see an instance that I want to create, I go, oh, that green with that yellow here would create the mood that I'm looking at. So there's that. But I'm also going to bring you back to palette because my mom's palette constantly returns to my artwork where my palette is a more happier palette than some people's. And so I find that goes in, that's kind of my happy place to be when I'm Making something, you know, creating something. I, I have a default group of colors that I will, will work with. But I think really, um, what I like to think is that um, my color is not just coloring in, right? It's not like we're just doing black and white, dropping color in. Right. Um, that sometimes is a thing that happens these days, particularly with computers, is that it's easy to drop in color, but it's it's a it's more nuanced. And that part of that is because I love to do it in watercolor, because I work in watercolors allows you to have many more varieties of personality in in the color hmm.
0: How do you depict various personality traits in clothing?
2: Well I, for me the the um, uh, clothing can be in the cartoon can be a prop more than anything else although sometimes you know people have iconic clothing that they wear deliberately and, and because I'm dealing with public figures sure. They have so many stylists working them, so they get an iconic look, and then they don't break from the look. That's part of their deal. Right. And and so yeah, I capture that. But really, what's interesting because I'm dealing in ridicule largely.
1: <laughs>
2: then mm-hmm. what happens is that I take that where that their chosen look, and then I make fun of it, or I diminish it. You know, you make the sleeves go a little bit too high up their arm, or too far down. In Donald Trump's case. You, you drop the sleeve so that's like halfway down his hand, and his fingers are barely appearing underneath, right? And, right. Uh, or, or, you know, the the way that everyone does stuff with his tie, uh, making it so long that it kind of drags behind him and things like which
0: that. Which is barely um, caricature, which is barely caricature, because that is just that's how right. he looks.
2: <laughs> it's, it's crazy. I mean, seriously, who's, who's advising him? Of course, he doesn't listen to anybody anyways. Right. But, yeah, you nobody. Know, but... You know, but that is, yeah, you know, I mean, really seriously. Yeah,
1: he, he has a unique ability to make a, what I'm assuming is probably five or $6,000 suit and make, look yeah. like it came from Joseph Banks.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah.
1: that takes talent.
2: It takes a lot of talent, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. Cal,
1: who are, uh, who are some of your favorites that, that you uh, have or, or like to draw? Um, you know, international figures, presidents? Hmm, Interesting.
2: Well, I, I I I'll give you two answers for this. The first answer I think it's going to be surprising everybody is that it's always always the, the current president of the United States. Okay. Yeah. And and the and the reason why that is is because their faces are changing a lot when they're in office. Oh. Okay. Because yeah. the a the the pressure of the job makes them age exponentially. Even 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 Joe Biden has got less um vim in right. his you know vimless face. I mean, then, I re- I
1: remember seeing pictures of Obama like at the beginning of his pre- uh, presidency and at the end, and yeah. it was shocking. Yeah. Like I'd I'd never really thought about that, but obviously you have.
2: Yeah, yeah. Their faces change exponentially, I think. And um, and I tell people it's it's a combination of gravity and gravitas Right. <laughs> together under the face. So mm. it's um, it is um. Yeah, so I love watching their face. Plus, plus, not that I get, I get to know, I know, get to know their face better than I know my 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 own face right, right. because I'm I look at them for like three or four hours at a time. Because when I'm drawing, I have photos of them on my screen in front of me, and and uh, in, in fact, I don't know about you guys. I mean, I look at them for like three, or four hours at a time. I only look at my own face for like one or two hours at a time. I don't know about you guys. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, <laughs> maybe so, maybe two. That'd be too, yeah. So it's um, it's one of these things where that it's a it's fantastic journey working with the whoever is present. So then, then as a result, I now have a collection of because I've been drawing presidents since Ronald Reagan. Um, that amongst that crew, I have a few favorites. Okay. Um, Bill Clinton was one, and um, he it's to see his face age
1: tremendously in his time.
2: Yeah. But he I mean, just he... had this.
1: He looks like a cartoon t- in in real life. Exactly,
2: <laughs> exactly. He's just like a cartoon. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was very interesting to draw because he had a very animated face. He was, you know, rubbery. He was uh, an actor, so he could really put on all sorts of moods, and it sure. meant that um, you could take you could say take a ball of st- string and drop his hairdo on top of it, and uh, you can make it look like Ronald Reagan. It's you know, just as simple <laughs> as that. Yeah. And so that those are things that. But the uh, and also, by the way, that was in contrast to Margaret Thatcher, who was the Prime Minister of Great Britain at the time, who had exactly one expression.
1: Yep. Yeah. I she imagine. just was like this.
2: You know, it's like a, 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 a frozen. Her face was frozen in, in time. So that like was like a robotic dog. That. Yes, exactly. So you know, and, and but new guys come along all the time, um, and uh, you know today. Um, i think you're drawing the chinese leader she has been interesting because at first you know people are, one of the things when you're doing caricatures and cartoons you're helping educate your audience as to what these people look like
1: right because mm-hmm. they look
2: at the photos they're not paying attention but the caricature is paying attention and so if you do a nice you know a good strong caricature of them people start to see all the parts of their face so that's really interesting the
0: economist is a conservative publication, and I would think that cartoons are at odds with that, and so I was wondering how how it's been to make your way at at the economist doing mm-hmm.
2: so the the economist is is kind of it's conservative ish uh what I mean is it's more liberal in the old tradition of what a liberal is is that they. Uh, they were basically established because of free trade. Free trade was is the, their big thing, but open government. I mean it surprises people, but the economist um, in, uh, endorses legalization of old drugs, for example. Okay. Uh, but yeah. at, but, at the, but at the same time they they want control of guns. Um, you know and they have uh, supported for, you know uh, for president in the past I think for past four elections they've nominated, they backed uh, the Democrats you know, for president. Uh, but they're certainly in the, if, if it was an American spectrum, they'd be more in the middle, but they're they are a, a, a definitely a strong pro-capitalist, you know, so in that regard, they could be cons- considered to be conservative, but on social issues, they're on the left, left of center. So it's so interesting, it's a kind of, icon- you know, uh, idiosyncratic uh, organization. I support them in many things. Um, I was particularly against the Iraq War the the um, the first and second Iraq War, Um, but they were for them. But they they have since kind of recanted on the second one. Okay. But -hmm. anyways, for for me, I they give me a lot of freedom. They give me an awful lot of freedom. I've kind of I guess earned it over time. And then I kind of know the areas where um, I maybe won't tread because it's not doesn't kind of fit into their into their mix. But, you know, I do one cartoon a week for them that's an editorial cartoon Then I do an illustration for them every week. And there's only been over my 45 years with them one or two instances where I just wouldn't do a cartoon because what what was going to be required was not going to fit my my perspective. But it may be also about being married. The two of us have been married for 45 years. So over time, I've become more like them. They've become more like me. I don't right, know.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we read a little that's bit a about an yeah, it really is. And also, you know, the, that seems like a pretty good track record of only a couple of things that yeah. have, you know, have gone against your your. Well, values. they're not conservative
0: like the Republican Party. They're conservative no. publication from...
2: That's right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 And yeah, I think, yeah, because the the, the, uh, the political spectrum in the UK is a lot different than it is here as well.
1: Okay. Uh, so, Cal, we were reading about... Um, an organization that you led that protected political cartoonists internationally, mm, uh, right. Cartoons Rights Network. Mm. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of what your uh, what your experience uh, with that org was?
2: Mm. Well, well, you know, here in the U.S., we forget just how lucky we are to have the ability to express our own thoughts in the open. And uh, the cartoonists particularly are kind of in the front line of freedom of expression. Uh, if you get cartoons in trouble here, but uh, abroad, it, it's particularly difficult. And uh, a, a recent report from a place called Freedom House, which judges the amount of um, freedom of, of expression and, and journalism that is around the world. Only about 15% of the, of the you know, world's population live in a place where there's freedom of 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 the press. And it's that also neatly, I think, overlaps with the amount of places in the world where cartoonists can draw their own head of state, right? You just cannot dare draw your own head of state. So, as a result, um, in these kind of very ticklish times and intolerant times with with, uh, demagogues everywhere, cartoonists uh, have been around the globe routinely um, jailed, tortured, and murdered for what they do. Right. And mm-hmm. so uh, an organization was was started, I think, about 20 years ago now um, by a, um, a basically an overseas aid worker, American, who was um, working in a variety of different countries and found that that um, the cartoonists were coming up to him and, and looking for help. Cartoonists are their families to try to help them out of trouble that they're having with the governments. So when the guy came back, um, his name was Bro Russell. He came back. He reached out to me and some other people about trying to set up a, you know, a, a forum that could not just raise money to help these people in their own micro, micro um, issues they have there, but also an advocacy group that could then um, shine a spotlight on the problems that are going on in other places and maybe get um, other organizations and other governments to step in. And then um, protect the cartoonists in question and other journalists. And so over time, we've, we've, ha- we've saved cartoonists, um, smuggled some people out of countries that they were in danger of being, uh, you know, targeted. Um, we have done a lot of, um, uh, we've had cartoonists who've had to, um, we, give our, sorry, we, we do an annual award basically that brings attention to certain cartoonists and raises their profile. And, um, and, and, and makes them so that they're, hot, they're hotter for anyone to try to take them on within their own country because they know basically the world is watching. Right. So it, right. That's, that's a great honor for me to do this. I've met many of these cartoons from all around the globe. I'm so impressed by the bravery of these individuals. Um, if I was in their shoes, I'm not sure I would do the same thing that they're doing. It's really remarkable because they're the freedom fighters in their own country putting their lives and their families in danger in order to use cartoons, which are a very potent weapon, particularly in societies where literacy is not very high. The cartoons can go places that that the words can't
1: sir, sure. and, sure. and
2: it's really something
1: Man, you, you you were carrying on the uh, you know some of some of my favorite cartoons that I've seen are like the old union cartoons and whatnot, and I feel like you know you guys are carrying that torch these days.
2: Yeah, you know, and it, it, that's what cartoons can do, you know. So I'm, I'm very honored to be in this profession.
1: Just out of curiosity, did, did you know, your guys ramp up um, things after the Charlie Hebdo incident? Or or was that just kind of, you know, business as usual for, for what you guys do?
2: Well, yeah, so the Charlie Hebdo just kind of remind people was that, you know, it was over five years ago, coming up to six years maybe, six right years ago when... Um, you know, some gunmen um, basically um, broke into Charlie Hebdo, which was this French satirical magazine that had done um, lots of um, articles and, and images critical of, of Prophet Muhammad. And people took offense, and they came in with their automatic weapons and gunned down five cartoonists and some other folks as well. And right. then it, it caused a gigantic um, reaction of people in support of freedom of expression. They had these large marches, they had heads of states going to Paris, doing all this stuff. Um, but the sad thing is is that all of that enthusiasm as quickly waned as other things came you know, across everyone's bow, including coronavirus and so on
0: right
2: you know the the thing about uh, cartooning as we've known it throughout history has been intricately the future has been intricately bound to the future of newspapers and newspapers are fading fast right so the cartooning as we've already known it um is is under threat in ways that we're not used to um i don't think satire is under threat i think we we live in a a time of of ever increasing and (laughs) healthy satire appearing everywhere in the internet, but cartoons harder. Now there's, of course, my cartoons are more widely seen today than ever before, thanks to the web. And I think that I'm one of the lucky ones that can still have that. But if I was starting out now, I think my path to becoming a cartoonist would be much more difficult than it was way back in the day.
1: Right.
0: That's what a lot of people say when I met, when I met Stenny Hoyer, that's what he said. It's hard out there. Um, about the covers, you probably have covered the Economist more than anybody. Is that right?
2: Uh, yeah, I did. I probably done 150 covers over the years. Um, um, I have done less so recently because the style. It's interesting you know, you're talking about your know, clothing as a style, but you know, imagery as a style can also come on come into play. And because of the introductions of computer-generated artwork, has changed the way that people perceive. Um, you know, graphics. And um, so they don't use as much illustration on the graphics anymore, but they do a lot of computer-generated artwork. So um, I've done less of those more recently, but I I did, you know, had a great run there of creating all these covers and some of them, you know, classics that, you know, really embodied some of the main important things that um, have gone on in history for several decades. But I do have uh, one fun story of doing a cover Um, that um, back in the day, again, this was a a while back, it's probably in the 90s now, when um, we first moved from England to the the United States um, and they wanted me to do a cover. What they would do is on Monday, they have a meeting in London, Uh, they decide on the cover, they talk to me uh, and I would then work on it until Tuesday uh, midday and then a courier come to my house Pick up the artwork and then fly overnight to London to be there by Wednesday because Wednesday is the press day for the Economist. So everything went well for several years, but then one day, a guy, the courier came, picked up the artwork, and never showed up the next day in London with the artwork. And they were pet, the, the magazine was petrified because everything was on tight schedules. In those days, they were sending plates via Concord to the Far East. And um, they called me up in a panic and said, what can we do? And so I quickly grabbed um, a pencil sketch that I had done of the artwork, uh, threw a little bit of ink on it. I then blew it up on a photocopy machine um, and sent over six pieces of the artwork by fax. And then <laughs> they then taped it together, and then they photographed it, and then they spray-painted it quickly, and that went on the cover. And it was awful, right? It was a real tragedy. So they called me back the next day and said, look, we – In the future, we cannot take any chances about this happening anymore. So uh, when we want you to do a cover, uh, we want you to find uh, a friend of yours to take the cover over for us (laughs) so that the (laughs) video can be delivered. So suddenly we had so many friends because everybody wanted to go to London for free on the the Economist dime. But the funny (laughs) thing was is that, as it turns out, very few people can drop everything they're doing at 24 hours notice and go to london for five days surprisingly right. so we would have a list of about 20 people and uh, go down that list and it was really hard to find people sometimes so anyways that was in the day when they did that sort of thing
1: do, do you know what ever happened to that piece of art like it never showed up anyway uh
2: it did show up later in the day but let, showed up way too late
1: um, oh gotcha gotcha yeah it it, it, it
2: it but the thing was that that really hurt the economists was that they're bullshitting they're telling economists like oh no it's Landa, we've got it here it's just and they they did this for several hours when every minute mattered you know right and, and if we had if we had known you know five or six hours earlier that had had done something more you know
1: right uh do you have a favorite cartoon that you've done i i'm sure with the amount that you've done over the years it's that's yeah. probably a loaded question but <laughs> But yeah,
2: yeah, actually, because I, I, doing the math, I've done over ten thousand cartoons I've published. Good. Um, but, Gosh. but I have you know one that has um, lasted a test of time and it's and it's been widely reproduced. And so in this way, I you know I, I'm fond of it. it. It's a cartoon about the stock market. and uh, okay. it, it's in it's in two um, uh, it's two stages. So the first stage, there's a guy on the phone that says, "I got a stock here that could really excel." A person overhears him next to him says Excel, and the person after that says Excel, 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 sell, 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 right? And then the second panel, the second panel starts the same way, saying sell, sell, sell. A guy overhears this says, "This is madness. I can't take anymore. Goodbye." And somebody says, "Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye, bye, 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 bye." And then, so it's all about the madness of the stock market, and it's been reproduced over and over again, and uh, it's just been great. Yeah,
1: that, that for everyone listening, you you should certainly uh, certainly check that cartoon out. It we'll is, post it. Yeah, we will post it. It is a great one.
0: Thank you. So I was going to ask about pen and paper versus tablet and iPad. Yes, I do think we talked about that a little bit. Have pens or pencils that you like better than others? Do you have a paper stock that is your preference?
2: Well, I'll I'll tell you a specific about a pen story because pencils, you know, I I like using propelling pencils, so I don't have to sharp sharpen them. Which I guess they call what do you call them here? Um, You know, uh, mechanical mechanical pencils. Yeah, they call propelling pencils propelling in the UK. Um, so those are great. And then, and then my sketch paper is just like photocopy paper. But then I, I, I love painting on, um, on, uh, on, on, on um, certain kinds of uh, um, beautiful paper. Cuthbert uh, is one of my favorite. Um, but, the, but the pen story. I thought you guys would enjoy this. So um, I'm in the UK. I'm working at The Economist. And the art director there says, I've only been there about a year or two. So I'm a young guy. I'm tw- in my early 20s. And he, and he says you know you what you need to do you need to go visit philip pool at, at his nibs which is the name of us his store and it's a it's a it's a shop that sells only pen nibs right and and i said okay so we figured out where it was which is, which is down near near piccadilly circus and um i remember going down there and I, the address was shaftsbury it might have been shaftsbury avenue but but it was like 33 and i i was i was at the at the where thirty three should be, I saw thirty five over here, and I thought thirty one over here, and then between them was a door, but no number on it or anything. So if I, was, I guess that's thirty three, right? So I go up to the door, and I open it up, and it was like going into something in Harry Potter world, right? The door kind of squeaked open, and inside was this room, dark room with with inlaid into the walls all these you know floor to ceiling. Uh, shelves and doors that had tiny little windows in them, you know, and, and so, I, and then at the back of it was this this desk and nobody is sitting there, but I, I heard this kind of shuffle in the back room. I went, hello, anybody there? And this little guy comes shuffling out. What do you want? I said, well, <laughs> I, I was not here, but you know, getting some nibs. So he asked me questions of what, what kind of drawing do I do? And so on, and then he shoved me a little box, little box, Two inches by an inch, packed full of maybe twenty different nibs. He says, "Try these, see if there's any one that you like, and then come back to Smee. So I did. After, you know, over a couple of weeks, I would try them with different ink, and I came back and I kind of settled on one that I liked. And uh, and he said, "Great." And he went back and grabbed some more. And it was um, it was called George Hughes one three one nine. So that's just a specific name. So I, I use this. I go visit uh, Philip Poole every you know, month or so, get a few more nibs. And I got to know him a little bit. He was a little less grumpy over time. And uh, so fast forward about five or six years, I, I come to him. I said, Phil, this, these nibs are just great. Um I just, can I get you know, any more? And he says, I don't have any more. I'm sorry. I said, well, when are you going to get some in? He says, get some in? They haven't been made for over 100 years. I said, what? <laughs> you know? So he says, you'll be lucky to see any more of those. I said, oh, no, that's that's tragic. I'm so sorry. I wish I'd taken more care of him. that kind of thing. So anyways, I kind of found my way with something else, but nothing ever matched that. So before I left England to come to the Baltimore, um, I went to see him one last time, and he says, give me your address, blah, blah, blah. And two years later, I get this beautiful letter from him in London. It says, I, I, someone in a basement somewhere, somebody stumbled upon this box of 144 of these 1319s. And so it says, I'll buy the whole lot.
1: Oh, nice.
2: That's to me. And I still have, I'm still working off of that. And that's been now, oh, 30 years. I've been working with that same box and You're i probably taking care of them better
1: than I, the first year. I'll tell you,
2: I'm only halfway through them, buddy. So I, I I, think I can go to 870 or 80. No, up 100. I think I can make it 100.
1: All right. All right. Well, uh, to, to wrap up with our final question, uh, a little existential as we like to do on occasion. Um, but if a young Cal could look into the future and see yeah. Cal now, yeah. Uh, yeah, what do you think that that little dude would, would say?
2: Oh man, he would be, oh God. Well, first of all, it would relieve an enormous amount of anxiety. Cause when you're <laughs> young, right? You're right. Gonna like, what the fuck is going on? What am I going to do? Will I, and the, you know, the big question is, will I ever be a cartoonist? Right. Or could I sustain it? I mean, because it's it was, it was basically an impossible dream to sort of say, oh, I'm going to do this. But I was like, I'm all in and who knows where this is going to go. But, let's but he, he could see now and I would love to talk with that young guy and tell him, don't worry, you know, it's going to work. But, but, you know, work your ass off. It doesn't just come.
1: Right. And, right. and
2: but also just tell him you're on the right track, man. You know, you're doing OK. And and I think that the 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 young guy the young guy would probably think the old guy is pretty cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, I would agree bad, with bad that. Thing. You said a bad way, man. You did all right. So yeah. yeah, yeah, no, they'd be proud, and and um and also you know yeah I think all of these things you know I've I've been lucky as guys I can tell you you know I just I, unbelievable. Yeah. Well,
1: uh, I mean, just from, you know, just from hanging out with you today, it, it couldn't have happened to a better person. So <laughs> Right. but Couldn't have happened to a nicer guy.
2: Yeah. 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 Well, I, I'm so happy. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, man. Thank you for coming
1: on. And, uh, you know, this was this was a really fun conversation. Um, and, you know, we always give our guests a chance to plug whatever they want to plug. So, yeah. OK. Oh, OK. Oh,
2: well, I'll start by plugging the cotton do uh, um, shirts. They're really good. I'd really nice. highly, highly recommend that. And then, uh, oh, go to my website, caltoons.com, and check out my cartoons there. Follow me on social media, um, you know, Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and you name it. Um, yeah, I mean, really, support and spread the word. Because, I mean, democracy thrives on, on satire, and I'm there, buddies. Follow me, Absolutely. please
1: absolutely yeah you're the man you're,
2: in
0: the street you are the man in the street with the satire
2: <laughs>
1: yeah. well uh yeah thanks everyone for listening um thank you again cal for coming on and uh i am matt smith at rebels Rogues on instagram and i'm connor fowler at connor fowler with one n uh if you have questions comments concerns drop us a line uh, either on instagram at apocalypse studs or apocalypse studs at gmail.com and yeah we're out thank you
0: thanks a lot cool. this would be where the outro music would go Do <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>